Welcome to the 360T Podcast, a series that features top industry professionals offering unique insights regarding how the FX market is developing around us. Hello, and welcome to the podcast with myself, Galen Stops from 360T. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Christopher Cruden from Inch Kintour Limited. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Before we kind of dive into some of the questions I have for you, can you outline the products you trade within the FX market just so that people understand some of the answers you're going to give? Of course, we trade a, a portfolio made up of currently seven price streams, and they are traded as rolling spot on the FX desk of major banks and brokers, notwithstanding the fact that the um, reference currency is always gold. So it's gold versus uh, US dollar, gold versus euro versus yen, British pound, Australian dollar, Swiss franc, and Canadian dollar. And those seven rows of numbers make up the portfolio of the Kintor strategy. And why gold? Uh, the reason for that is I've been in currencies pretty much all of my life, certainly since my first currency program was launched in 1991. And the currency markets were very different in 1991. Just a little bit. They were interbank markets, for example. <laughs> um, nowadays, you can be a, a nice little Chinese, Japanese housewife doing the ironing and punting the living hell out of an online <laughs> trading account. But back then, you could not. So really, the change was uh, prompted by um, the events of 2008, 2009, mm -hmm. and what appeared to me at the time being a, a diminishing of the interest rate differentials. Yep. And in foreign exchange, and this is not exactly the world's biggest secret, but <laughs> currency markets are designed to facilitate capital flows and money always seeks a higher return. And the point of those two statements is that if the interest rate differential is diminished, then it makes certainly trend following in currency markets substantially um, more difficult and more right. to the point less profitable. And so I started looking for something else and um, not one who goes out of my way to have original thoughts. <laughs> it occurred to me that you could use anything you choose as a currency. And if you're going to choose something randomly, you'd be best off um, looking at gold because many people, for example, think that gold is a currency. Mm -hmm. Not an argument or a discussion I care to have. Um, but more importantly, you can trade it as an FX cross on the FX desks at major banks and brokers, exactly the same way as you trade euro dollar or dollar yen or any other FX cross. And so you get the liquidity, you get all sorts of things or the, the primary attractions and benefits of foreign exchange trading. You just happen to be using commodity gold as one of the um, uh, sides of the, of the pair. Okay, so you talk about the FX market changing and evolving, and it certainly has over the period you mentioned. What aspects of the currency markets make it attractive for you as a hedge fund manager to trade and, and be involved in? First and foremost, I think the nature of the participants is very different from most other markets. For example, if you are in the stock market, you bought a stock at 10 and you're hoping to sell it to somebody uh, at 15, and he's going to be looking for somebody to sell it at 20. And the vast preponderance of participants are on the long side. In the FX markets, that is absolutely not the case. 
being long dollar yen is exactly the same as being short yen dollar. The participants are there because they have real business to do. For example, Volkswagen might be selling euros and buying dollars, but they're not doing that because they think dollars going to go up against the euro. They're doing that because they have to meet a payroll at a factory in Alabama or wherever. So these are real people. And so people like ourselves, who are, shall we politely say, from the speculative community, are a tiny fraction of what real people are doing with real lives and real money. And so that's, that, that is very attractive. And also, of course, it is a market in which we can't, shall we say, manipulate or influence, certainly not in the major currencies. Uh, we can remain completely anonymous in terms of our trade size and, and mm-hmm. various other things. So from our point of view, it's, it's, it's a perfect place to be. Now, you mentioned there that you deploy trend-following strategies. From what I understand, broadly speaking, it hasn't been a vintage year, well, a vintage decade, rather, for trend-following. I know that 2014, I believe, was a pretty good year, but generally it hasn't been great. Why do you think that is? The the, the great get-out on this one is people will always say that... um, it was the wrong type of trend or the wrong <laughs> type of volatility or this, that, and the other, which is a huge cop-out. I think a lot of people have been drawn to the trend-following strategy, or at least to pay lip service to it. But I wonder how many people are actually true-blood um, trend-followers, as we are. Okay. Uh, you find people say they're trend-followers, but they have a fundamental overlay. Well, what the hell does that mean? I don't know. So it's very difficult to know in this business what people say they're doing is sometimes at some divergence from what they're actually doing. And I remember years ago, mid-90s, a lot of managers described themselves or started, and by that managers I mean CDAs, started to describe themselves as currency managers. And the reason for that was that the, the industry, such as it was the investing industry, were looking for currency managers. Well, if you're looking for currency managers, by God, I'll be one. <laughs> and so it's commodities in its purest sense that your supply rises to meet demand. So it's just a label. And do you think it, it's... Did that sufficiently interrupt you here again? Yeah. Did, did that sufficiently avoid answering the question? <laughs> it did, but I've got a follow-up. Oh, dear. <laughs> I I was going to ask the extent to which you see this as cyclical because I feel like every few years I read a swathe of articles about trend following is dead. That's the phrase they always land on, the the death of trend following. In my previous life as a journalist, I think I might have even written one or two of those articles. So I was curious, (laughs) I was curious for your thoughts on on why it seems that that every few years, and, and to be fair, these articles seem to appear just before trend following has a great year. Why there's sort of yeah. every few years it seems to be written off as a strategy? The answer to that is I honestly couldn't speculate as to why that might be the case. What I would say, though, is thank you for writing those articles. If ever there was a buy signal, <laughs> that's it. But I, I, I really don't know. As I say, I mean, it, it really depends on what you regard true trend following to be. And that's for others to, to measure and, and comment on. I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned before. You mentioned the wrong type of volatility. I think I was on a call with someone recently and they talked about, someone used the phrase sweet spot volatility and the person responded, I don't think everyone would agree on what sweet spot volatility is, but I think we can all agree we're never in it. 
Do you think that, that such thing as the wrong type of vol exists? I guess for trend following, I hear that a lot in terms of markets whip soaring and changing direction. That's the wrong type of volatility. Do you buy that argument? Yeah, my golf clubs have a sweet spot. <laughs> and sometimes, <laughs> random probabilities, I, I actually hit a good shot with my golf clubs. But sometimes I just barely get by. And sometimes it's really not very attractive at all. Say too with volatility, there is no number that is ideal. Yeah. Uh, but it's somewhere within a band or boundaries of some sort. In foreign exchange, it's, it's or at least we, the way we look at it, it's relatively straightforward. We operate on a basis of a volatility band. So within inside the, if you can visualize two railway lines, if you're inside that, you stay with the trend. If you go outside that, it is um, a stop and reverse, which tends to work in foreign exchange due to the nature of the markets being bidirectional. But if you go outside an outer band, that's a closed window. So therefore, okay. you do nothing and you have no position. A good example of that would have been the events of March of this year, where although, like everybody else, we complain that volatility is too low and gold and currency volatility has been in a multi-year low, mm -hmm. so we've almost had a multi-decade low for gold and currencies, but nevertheless, it has been and suddenly it rose, although I do say that volatility never rises, it only ever jumps, and it certainly <laughs> did. Then you get the complaints that the volatility is now too high. Well, it's never going to be the sweet spot. <laughs> and it's childish to, um, to suggest or hope that it will be. Going forward, what we would hope is that volatility does settle down, which it will, mm -hmm. and that it settles down at a higher level than it has been in golden currencies, for example, for the last five years or so. Well, great. Thank you so much for a uh, informative and certainly entertaining and, shall we say, thought-provoking podcast, Christopher. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the 360T podcast. Check the 360T website to catch up on past episodes and find new listings.